Jennifer Fraser is author of The Bullied Brain, Heal Your Scars and Restore Your Health. She has a PhD in comparative literature and The Bullied Brain is her fourth book. She draws on medical, neuroscientific, and neurobiological research to examine what happens to brains that are bullied and abused. Jennifer is an award-winning educator and works as a coach, consultant, and international presenter. This podcast is a dialogue that works in the first season like a coaching session. Eric shares his childhood experiences of being abused, and Jennifer discusses the implications for brain and for recovery. Our goal is to use Eric's childhood abuse like a case study as most people don't learn about their brains or about how abuse impacts their brains. The research is clear that the brain is innately wired to repair and recover when we know the harm done and the evidence-based practices to heal. This is the focus of Jennifer's book, but it comes to life in a podcast as Eric bravely walks us through the abuse done to him and his many strategies for healing his neurological scars. For all those who have suffered bullying, abuse, and trauma, join us to look at it through the lens of brain science and learn ways to repair the harm done. Welcome back, everybody. Today, as always, I have Jennifer Frazier with me. I don't know if we're going to be bringing guests on, maybe eventually, but we, we seem to have quite a bit of content just between the two of us. And uh, we, were, we were discussing right before I hit record my therapy session with my therapist today and my fiance and how it was brought up. I asked her to share with my therapist my what my parents said to her the first time they ever met. And the very first thing my mother ever said to my to my fiance, what and back then it was my girlfriend, but was why doesn't Eric like me? And and you know, and Jennifer, you made kind of an interesting face, and my therapist just kind of was a little taken aback and surprised. You know, and then my therapist said, Well, that doesn't really surprise me. And and you seemed like you weren't really that surprised, just a little nonplussed almost with, with the kind of face you made. And you've said you're very your your facial expressions are very what you what you feel is what I'm going to see. So I'm going to ask you about it. So somebody was asking me, I mean, this question came up a number of times where because I work on abuse and I study abuse and bullying and how it unfolds, people will say to me, well, so-and-so who behaves that way, how can he or how can she sleep at night? And I, I started to think about it. And then when I had written The Bullied Brain and neuroscientist, Dr. Michael Merzenich was looking at it, he said to me, you know, you haven't done it. You haven't done a lot of work on what does a brain look like of somebody who is abusive? I think you, you need to do some of that. So I was like, okay. So I went back to the drawing board and I took a look at the neuroscience, the, a bunch of research on what exactly is going on in the brain of somebody who can be very abusive. Because for the rest of us, like when you describe things that your mother and father did to you as a child growing up, I just I just recoil. I It makes me feel ill. It, it makes me feel angry. I feel instantly, you know, it activates all kinds of protective feelings in me as, as a mother, as a teacher, just as a human being to see people two and three and four times the size of a dependent child, brutalizing that child is, is pretty revolting for a lot of a lot of us. So when I hear that though about what your mother said, why doesn't Eric like me? It fits in with what I found out in the research. So why they say, you know, why, how can he sleep at night? How can she sleep at night? Well, they, they have no problem sleeping because here's what's going on in their brain. So 
and I can't remember, Eric, if we talked about this at one point, I feel like we did, but it's worth going over again. So if you and I were put under a brain scanner and they were watching our brains as we react to images and they showed us a bunch of images of things like a child being bullied or they showed us pictures of a boy being hit by his father or being told by his mother things like, I wish you were never born or I wish you would die, these sorts of things. If we saw any of that, the emotion center would light up in our brain and the empathy center would light up in our brain right away. And the empathy would light up in the same way as, as the individual suffering. If you looked in their brain, suffering this trauma, this pain and humiliation and, and you know lack of belonging and lack of attachment, their brains would match up with our brains in a really interesting way. This is how empathy literally works on a brain level. Ours would be quite muted. The same areas would light up, but they'd be muted. And that, that's designed by evolution for us to go and help the person. We would go run to the aid of this child. And that's how human beings survive. We need to survive by being together. We can't survive alone. So let's now take the brain of your mother and put and father and put it into the brain scanners. In theory, because there, you know, we, ought, we can't do that, but in theory, this is what we would expect to see. Right. So we can't do that, but if we could, where I'm making the argument that your mother is a psychopath, as I have before, you put her into the brain scanner and you show her the exact same images that we saw. And her brain does not light up. The emotion center doesn't light up and the empathy center doesn't light up. They remain extinguished. There's no activity. Can you imagine? That's the part of the brain that doesn't understand that that would ask a question like, why doesn't Eric like me? Because the person is missing that part of, it's like the, that part of the brain's not there. And then here gets more interesting. The parts of the brain that do light up in these individuals are language and cognition. So cognition, just to remind everybody, is it's the thinking part of the brain and the language processing center of the brain. So if you are a psychopath, chances are very good you're also a pathological liar. You have no problem putting on a show for other people that you are one thing when in fact behind closed doors, you're quite another. And you live your whole life is all about manipulation. You love to manipulate. It's a game for you. You like to win the game. And you don't, you don't have any feelings that get in the way of this. You don't have any guilt. You sleep like a baby every night because you don't feel anything. It's the people that have the feelings that are tossing and turning that wish they didn't do something or feel guilty about it or they regret and they try and make amends the next day because we're all so imperfect. Not the psychopath. Psychopath sleeps like a baby. And that, that makes sense, Jennifer, because, and I don't, I don't remember how much I've shared about my time in the service or whatnot, but growing up, I think I've shared this already and maybe even on this podcast, we've talked about so much in, in such a short time, but growing up, I would say I was almost a pathological liar. I mean, I lied because it was almost easier than telling the truth. But I don't feel like it was a game I wanted to win. I feel like it was more of a self-defense mechanism and an adaptation to try to get people to like me. And it carried into the Navy. The first couple of years, well, more than the first couple, first couple of duty stations. And a duty station is three or four years. I count myself fortunate because every time I changed duty, I was able to look back and say what worked, what didn't, and make changes to how I approached people at the new at the new command, at the new duty station. 
and it, it's, you know, I did feel guilty about lying because it got to a point. I, I don't know if I felt guilty about lying or just felt like it was, I know for sure I, I was, I was losing control of the lies. It was just so hard to keep track of. And then I came forward and I was very, I, 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 told you know I, I told somebody that you know i would have considered us friends i i told him you know this is you know i, I was up front with him i said i've lied about all this and his reaction was very different than what i thought it would be i mean i i was expecting you know anger whatever and and he was very he's he basically he basically and he and this was years ago so bear with my memory while i try to trying to draw it out of the the, the recesses of my mind because it's still, this was back when I was on the first boat, the Albuquerque, and I was on the Albuquerque from the 90, from 90, 1993 to 97, 98. So we're talking a long time ago. But he said, you know, he basically said, well, my name is, you know, X, pleased to meet you. And it was, it was basically a fresh start, a clean slate, you know, no, no, you effing a-hole, you know, none of the stuff I was expecting and that I think, I feel I probably would have reacted as, you know what I mean? But, you know, I do think it's interesting because I don't think my mom or my dad, because my dad, my mom's dead. My dad still doesn't really acknowledge it, would have ever said to me, hey, you know, sorry or whatever. And I don't know if I'm, I don't know if any of that really relates to to what you had said. I don't, and so maybe I'm just rambling, but... <laughs> No, I mean, it, it It totally relates in the sense that, you know, you just described two different kinds of people. One who, one, your father who brutalized you through childhood and doesn't say sorry, because of course he doesn't say sorry. Like, if you're the sort of person that feels badly about that, you wouldn't do it in the first place. There's kind of few things more grotesque than a parent who harms their own child, right? <laughs> you know, it's it's sort of a kind of one of the lowest forms of of human expression really but would he would that. he do it to protect himself yeah because there are plenty of people that have done horrible things to protect themselves if they if they well, you know what was he protecting himself from no i don't know i mean I, I i do think my mom was probably physically violent towards him but i don't think she could really hurt him she broke him i've told you that i mean mentally she broke him i don't know jennifer well, that's, know. you know that's an that's an interesting lead in to Stockholm syndrome, the idea of breaking somebody else's mind or brain so that they become, they, they become profoundly in a kind of survival mode that's a very desperate survival mode. But just before we talk about that, I just wanna, wanna touch on the friend who gave you a clean slate because that's such a beautiful example of empathy. So that when someone tells you they've done something that isn't, isn't fair or isn't true or might have felt manipulative, rather than going to the reactive place of that offends me and makes me angry, you could see that, that friend coming full circle and saying, wow, like what must it have taken for you to have, like what is so wrong or troubled or worrisome for you that you had to make yourself into something else I, I can feel what that would be like that's so hard so what would I want someone to do for me give me a fresh start let me try again wow this person had the courage to tell me that they didn't have to they could have just walked away but that is the you know the truest sign of a relationship is 
telling the truth about things that are difficult, not just the easy, good stuff, but the really hard stuff. Because, you know, as you and I talk about, all of us are on a trajectory of, of trying to be our best selves and we fail all the time. And, you know, it's, it's what you do with the failure that becomes really interesting. Yeah, I don't have anything it's, to add to that. <laughs> no, it's just it's just it's just a kind of a beautiful story. But okay, so let's look at your parents from a Stockholm syndrome point of view. I mean, you have a lot more empathy for your father than I do. I'm like really on the. I'm not impressed with your dad at all. I'd like to give him a piece of my tiny mind. But <laughs> I know that you somehow see your mother as as the one who manipulated the situation. So yeah, I feel like she drove everything. Yes. And it's quite possible. I mean, what do I know? But I mean, just from a point of view of, of Stockholm syndrome, it supports what you're saying. So to remind everybody or, or introduce this concept to people, if you've never heard the expression, it's a really interesting one. And it dates back to a bank robbery that took place in the 1970s in Stockholm, of course. And so the bank robber came in with his guns and terrorized everybody in the bank. And then he he wanted a, another guy that he knew who was a prisoner to come and join him. So of course the police are doing everything he says because he's got hostages. They bring in this other prisoner. So now it's these two guys in the Stockholm bank and they take their hostages. There's like three or four of them. And they take them into a vault, a bank vault. And they've got huge, like huge guns. So here's the two and they're making all these demands. They want this, they want that, they want this, they want that. Now. Here's where it becomes fascinating from a psychological point of view. They just the psychiatrists were brought to bear on this and all kinds of thinkers and so on and so forth, because the the captives, the hostages, totally bonded with their captors. And everybody was like, what? They should be, you know, these are their enemies. Why are they bonding with them? Why are they connected to them? You know, they were literally, they felt a bond of affection with these two men with the massive guns and nobody could figure it out. So ultimately, and, and they were all extensively interviewed, the hostages afterwards, they all got out. None of them died. The police were ultimately able to cause the, the guys with the guns to release them by putting poisonous gas into the vault. So they, to save themselves, they opened the door and came out. But when they did that, the captives, the hostages, they, they saw the police as the instigators, the, the dangerous ones. And they saw the, the captors as sort of their saviors and they hugged them and like nobody could wrap their mind around it. They couldn't understand it. So now it's well understood and well established in the research that what happens is if you are trapped by somebody who has a big gun, your only chance of survival is to befriend them, to serve them, to, to use your best empathy to figure out what they're feeling, what they're thinking, and what they're intending. You bond with them in the most intense way because your survival depends on it. What threatens your survival? The police, because the police are upsetting the guy who's very unstable with the very big gun who could blow your head off at any minute. So this is where it comes. And What's really interesting is that you see it on in other kinds of relationships. It doesn't have to be that extreme. You'll see athletes, for example, who have a highly abusive coach start to bond with the coach because to identify with the aggressor is a lot safer than going against the aggressor. And this is what you describe with your mother, being, yeah. being the captor and your father being the hostage in a sense. So he has to do her bidding because she'll destroy him otherwise. And it could also be there could be people out there now who are going through something very similar. Maybe they're in an abusive relationship 
and they feel trapped or or maybe they don't feel trapped or maybe you know I, I don't know i mean i can imagine it can be very hard especially if you have a child with a disability or a young child that needs a lot you know because younger children need more care than teenagers per se or a different type of care it can be really hard to to see a way out right i mean especially if you're financially dependent or you know, I don't know if you'd be emotionally dependent, but I can definitely see a financial dependency there. So what Absolutely. would you, how do you get around that? How do you escape that or get out of that? I, it's such, it's, it's so true that financial dependency, or if you think athlete to coach or yeah. student to teacher, these are all power imbalances and they all have dependencies. You depend on your teacher. Patient to position. You. Yeah. Yes, and well, and opens and closes doors for university or college or programs you might want to do. You need a letter of reference. You need the grades. They have so much power over you. They can even write about your character, and they can they can besmirch your character and say you're a terrible child. Same thing with the coach. They open and close the doors to all the sport things that you want, whether or not you get enough playing time to be seen or to win an award or get the practice that you need. Like it, they have a huge amount of power. Domestic relationships where you have a child, that's one of the biggest ones. And if you're with a, a person who's into coercion and control, one of the ways they oftentimes do it is financially, as we know. So what I just wanted to say that's so interesting in the literature is in abusive relationships, when you've been repeatedly hurt, and this again describes your father potentially, you develop what's called learned helplessness. So you come to believe that you can't actually get away you can't save yourself and you're so traumatized that you you are convinced that you are helpless another phrase used to describe this in the literature is called a perception of inescapability because the bottom line is you aren't helpless and the bottom line is you can't escape but if you've been traumatized enough times you don't believe that anymore and so i guess step one in these types of awful situations step one is to believe that you actually are not helpless and you can't escape. And you have to use every ounce of yourself to make that happen. You have to be strategic. If you're dealing with somebody who's abusive, you have to be very, very careful, strategic. You have to marshal the help of friends and family, work relationships, agencies out there that will help you and protect you and shelter you. You need to find out what your rights are legally and financially. Like you need to kind of develop a, a really great escape plan that you do quietly and carefully protecting yourself and your child at all times, you know, in the great scheme of things, maybe getting the, the abusive individual the help they need to rehabilitate because, you know, we've got to become a society where we start to understand that, you know, brain health and brain trauma are at the heart of all of our behavior and, and our brains are miraculous at repair and recovery, but we're not doing these types of rehab things that we could do. And so I'm, I guess it's a little bit hopeful, but I, I think that that should be the model going forward. Not everybody can be helped and rehabilitated, but a lot of people can. I think they need to want the help. You know, I, I think I've told you before, I was, I was an abusive boss, right? Not physically, but I mean, I was definitely verbally abusive and, and just not a pleasant person to work for. You know, and it, it'd be easy to say, well, it's not my fault or or whatever. But at the end of the day, it, it, you know, I was letting my anger take control over and, and run me. And I recognize that now, you know, I've had people tell me who served with me that they were thinking about 
throwing me off the flight deck of an aircraft carrier. And I don't think they were being hyperbolic. I mean, I think they really had that consideration, you know, because I, I was horrible. So you know what, this, I love this because I just had an amazing conversation with this woman and I'm gonna write a blog about it for psychology today. You're the perfect, you can be my case study for it <laughs> because she's an expert in, her name's Dr. Laura Crawshaw and she's an expert in rehabilitating bosses who are, she doesn't use the term bullying, she uses the term abrasive. And you were such an abrasive boss that they wanted to throw you, you know, into the ocean or into the air. Here's the good and exciting news. Of course you were like that because you come from profound trauma and it hadn't, you hadn't yet unpacked it and you didn't know what it was. What she finds out with the, and she's done this for 30 years. She's called the boss whisperer because she goes in and just, you know, like if you have a horse that's kicking and stamping and, and very aggressive you probably have a traumatized horse on your hands. And same thing with humans. Human creatures are the same way. What she, what she does with these abrasive bosses is she coaches them. So she starts out and she says, look, here's the perceptions of the people that work for you. And here's all the good things that they see about you. And there's lots of good things. And here's all the bad things. And there's a real lot of bad perceptions of who you are and how you treat them. They are not happy. And you have to change those perceptions or you're going to lose your position. So you can work with me and you and I can do a, we're going to do a bunch of research on what the people see about you. And then we're going to co-create a plan to get you better. And she's highly successful. She says what, what drives these individuals is they are terrified of looking incompetent. Yes. And they're, I can so, relate terrified. To that. they're so terrified of looking incompetent. Mm that they take it out on their teams and they think that they have to be really aggressive to get their people to work harder and do better and be stronger and be faster. And, you know, it's because they're so afraid and the deepest fears that we have, she uses quite a Freudian model. Freud, for people that don't know, he's like 19th century. He's kind of the head, the, the father of psychology, Sigmund Freud. And he, he says that we have two profound human fears. One is annihilation. Okay. We don't want to die. Everybody gets that. But what's really interesting is the other one. Deepest, deepest fear that matches annihilation is abandonment. So you don't want your team to abandon you. You want them, but you're also afraid that you're going to look stupid. And so you need them to work better, harder, faster, stronger, and you don't have empathy for them. And that can be fixed. She fixes these people all the time. They go back to work and they're like, oh, I was really triggered. I wanted to tear that guy's head off. And then I thought, no, that's not the right thing to do. And I was able to, you know, walk it back and they love it. And, and people come to love them. And then they start to work way more effectively together. Still have the talented guy who's in the leadership position, but all of a sudden the team is like, got his back and he will do anything for his team. See, and, and what you said there with the, and you, you said it so fast, I want to make sure people catch it. They don't have empathy for them. You know, and, and recently, I don't know when this is going to air. It could be a month, month and a half from when this happened. But Elon Musk went on Twitter and blasted a guy with with physical disabilities. And it, it, it that, like, to me is, like, even more so than what I shared. I mean, that, that was a very public display of lack of empathy, you know, abrasive boss. You know, it, 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 it's, I was never that public. You know, I was always, you know, I, I was loud, but I was never public. I mean, I'm sure people heard me, but, and I'm thinking back, you know, I, I was angry. 
I don't know if I I don't know if the fear was so much incompetent being I mean, if she says this, it probably was. I just don't remember feeling that. I remember feeling a lot of anger because I didn't want to leave submarines and I didn't want to be on an aircraft carrier. I didn't want to be there. And I had been disqualified from submarines because of a skin disease, psoriasis. You know, and, and we've talked about that, that psoriasis and arthritis is is all, you know, trauma or it can be trauma related, right? And my psoriasis had gotten so bad, I was literally covered about i think i think the medical record says 80 85 percent of my body was covered and i'm with open sores and bleeding and you can't have that on submarine because is it, doesn't it gone deal. is it gone now? i'm on i'm on medication i'm on cosentix and so yes all my arthritis is gone i don't have any permanent damage in my joints other than i've lost range of motion in my left out in my left shoulder b i don't have any long-term as long as i stay in the cosentix but it, you know that rage, that anger. I just I didn't have any outlet. I didn't know what to do with it, and I I didn't I didn't want to, and I still don't really want to hang out with the the other, the other chiefs. Right? I was a chief petty officer in the navy, and that's this brotherhood. And for me, I didn't understand why it was a brotherhood. I didn't. I mean, it was just a bunch of stupid games. You know that it, you know in terms of how you get initiated, and so. Like, I, I get what you're saying about terrified of looking incompetent, and maybe that was some of it, but I think a lot of it, too, was just the change of circumstances. And I guess, as I talk it out, the change of circumstances from going in a submarine where I was very comfortable, very familiar with what, what I was doing, and I was very respected at what I did. And now I'm in an aircraft carrier in an air department, which you can't get any more different from a submarine than to an air department on an aircraft carrier. With With... Very little work in in the grand scheme of things. On on the submarine, we we probably had enough work for you know for a team of eight, and we were maybe a team of three or four. Like we just we never we always had an, just a ton to do. On the aircraft carrier, we had twenty four. Tw I think I had one time I had seventy people working for me, but the the core group was about 25, 26 people. I think. And there was barely enough to keep them busy for two or three hours. And I resented that. You know, it just, it's like, find something to do, you know, and then, but again, it was, so yeah, maybe it was because, and I'm, I'm, I'm just rambling because I'm talking it all out. So bear, I appreciate you just being patient. Maybe it was that, you know, I was extremely competent on a submarine. I knew what I had to do. You know, the people I worked with knew what they had to do. I, I didn't, you know, I, I felt like I was around like-minded people. I felt like I was around, you know, just where I wanted to be. And then everything we always talked about on submarines, about the surface Navy and especially aircraft carriers, is their targets. You know, they're, they're you know, you go to, you the surface Navy is for the people that couldn't make it on submarines or, or just, you know, whatever. And here I am, an air department on an aircraft carrier, you know, just like feeling like I failed, you know, like, like I had, I had failed at 11, you know, I made chief in 11 years. I was doing phenomenal. Then at 13 years, I, I got disqualified, went to the surface Navy. I had to fight to stay in the Navy and, you know, and there was friction between my wife and I, because now that started the journey as a geographical bachelor, you know, on submarines, it was bad because I'd be gone all the time, but at least I lived at home. And now I'm in Virginia. My wife's in Connecticut. It just, 
it snowballed and that's where the rage really you know well I, i've always i'd always been angry but it was always kind of just beneath the surface and now i get to the carrier and it was bubbling over and i just couldn't like i couldn't find any redeeming factors and i don't know where it's, i'm going with this so i'm sorry <laughs> no 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 it's so interesting to me in the description that you're giving emotionally your body is trying to express as well it's just beneath the surface. It's a skin condition that's bubbling over, right? Like it's amazing to me, the link between the brain and the body and trauma. So one of the blogs I wrote for Psychology Today is all about inflammation. Inflammation in the body and inflammation in the brain that are caused by trauma. And, you know, we don't teach people this, but the bottom line is, you know, your anger is inflammation on one level. It's an absolutely overheated system that is desperately trying to, to survive and be healthy and feel well. And you know what I also find so fascinating and kind of like a more of a spiritual quest or something or psychological quest is the idea that I see this all the time in my work. It's like you get to a point, certain types of people where you could just keep staying at the same place. And that would have happened to you if you were able to stay on submarines. You wouldn't have had post-traumatic growth like what you're having right now. You would have stayed because you were really, really busy. So you never had to think about anything. And so that's workaholic, right? You're so busy. You're doing the job of like two people and, mm -hmm. and you don't have to think or feel or reflect or even be yourself, right? You're just this busy cog in this huge machine and you're important and you're needed and you automatically belong all these things, right? But your body and brain pushed you. It wouldn't let you stay there. It made you be a fish out of water. It dropped you into the worst possible environment. And I swear this happens all the time when you hit a, a plateau of, of success, certain types of people and the brain and body go, okay, he's strong enough. He's ready enough. Let's take him to the next level. And it's hard. I don't, don't want to minimize the suffering that goes with it, but that is how we do grow post-traumatic stress growth. You know? And you can tie that back to individuals who are in, in abusive relationships, right? I mean, like they can finally get to a place where they make that leap. And we always, we may, or maybe it's just me, but we ask, why can this person do it? But there's so many that can't. Well, it's, it's not, it's not because the other people don't, aren't, aren't, don't have an don't they're that they're not nice people it's just it takes an incredible strength of will and you know i, I don't know that you can build that I, I don't know that you can i don't know maybe you can but i i feel like to some degree you're, you're kind of born with what you're born with right like i mean i don't know i mean brain science would super disagree with you on that one <laughs> because what's fascinating is so we are born our in with our genetics and so on but what they now know is they know so much more now about how the environments that we're in so you were in a toxic environment and you've had to deal with a ton of toxicity that if you were in another environment growing up genetically my guess is you wouldn't have had you wouldn't have had the psoriasis you wouldn't have had the arthritis you wouldn't have had those things because you were growing up in a healthy environment you grew up in an environment that was polluted like massive toxicity and so your body and brain, you've been working really double time to get your health back. And it's had to be a real struggle, but you're getting it back. What we now know about the brain that's so interesting is we 
all of us, I, the vast majority of people know from zero to five, zero to three, zero to five, huge brain development takes place in the human brain. But what lots of people don't know is 13 to 25, same thing, huge plasticity and development is taking place. The adolescent brain is evolving into the adult brain and it's massive. And, you know, we can have a, a sort of a deep dive talk about that at some point, if it's at all relevant to your learners or your listeners, because it's so interesting and so relevant. And so when you reflect on your life, you can reflect on that era of incredible brain development. And so it's affected by the environment. And, and when you're a child, it's very hard to control your environment. You know, and one of the themes in our in our discussions has been you creating environments for yourself, for example, fictional worlds or nonfiction worlds of learning. You would get yourself out of your house and into the world of a book or a thinker or a topic and do a deep dive where you were creating your own environment to survive and, and to grow. And that's what you practiced. And even as a child, you practice things to save yourself. You practice bicycling away from home. You practice reading. You, you practice ultimately going into the Navy. These are all things that you use to create your own practice and your own environment for recovery, which is so interesting. And you could do it, right? So, I mean, we're born certain ways, but, but we also all have the capacity to practice things differently in order to recreate ideal conditions for brain and body. And so let's, let's end this episode on how, how can people do that? What is it? What is a one or two practical steps? Because I know if I was listening to this and I hadn't experienced what I've experienced, I'd be like, Jennifer, you're smoking crack. So, I mean, what would you suggest? Well, maybe I am smoking crack. I'm not, I'm just kidding. Okay, well, that's a great question. And that's what I really focused on in my book, The Bullied Brain. So the book title is The Bullied Brain, but the subtitle is the key, heal your scars and restore your health. And the reason it's called that is because there are all kinds of practices, evidence-based, grounded in science that we can do to heal our scars and restore our health. So I'll, I'm, I'm gonna rattle off a few of them and then we can always do more detailed talk about it if, if the audience is interested. But let's look at three. One of them is empathy. So we've talked a lot about that this time. And if your empathy is low or if it's being harmed by suffering in your, in your life, you can work to reignite it. You can work to get your empathy up and running again. And there's all types of different exercises to do to make that happen. Really what you're trying to do is step outside yourself and walk in someone else's shoes. And imagine what it would be like to be in their world with the things that they deal with and feel and intend and think. So let's take Elon Musk. Elon Musk got a massive backlash for how he publicly treated the employee who has a disability. Elon Musk never would have made such a fool of himself or have appeared publicly so callous and so without empathy if he had actually taken the time to get into the mindset of what it would be like if you had a huge disability that shaped your every waking moment, that held you back from so many things, that made you, constrained you in terrible ways. Like it's so hard, but he never takes the time to do that because he's too busy, you know, tweeting harmful things. So he could reignite 
his empathy, but he'd have to, it's hard work. I'm not, I don't want to suggest any of these things I'm saying are easy. They're not, they're hard work. Number two, that all of us can do that is crazy for how much it reduces stress and inflammation in the brain and body. It not only makes you resilient against abusive practices or bullying practices it and, and other traumas, it also heals traumas that you've suffered. And that is aerobic exercise. Doesn't cost anything really. Any one of us can tie on our runners or do martial arts or swim or skate or ski or anything, walk, hike, bicycle. We all can do amazing things for our brain and body and well-being by aerobic exercise. Yeah, it's one of the best. And I've ever. seen that because when I was in Cuba, I was running easily 30, 40 miles a week, easily. And and still today with my dog, he and I are doing six to 10 miles a day walking. Yep. It's so good for you. It's so good. And it really helps you on the healing path and it heals neurological scars. And then the final one that we can talk about briefly today is mindfulness. You know, people know mindfulness is an ancient Eastern practice, which it is, but it's also heavily researched in neuroscience because it's so good for your brain. And, you know, you're, when you do the deep breathing and you are, you're breathing from your diaphragm, good, long, slow, deep breathing, and you're just relaxing your body and you're becoming aware of your body in space, maybe you're closing your eyes and you're trying not to worry about the past and you're trying not to worry about the future, you're trying to just stay present and let go of thoughts and feelings and anxieties and to-do lists and all that junk that we have in our heads 24 seven. You're trying to just compassionately and with curiosity, just commune with yourself. George Mumford calls it, who's a brilliant mindfulness expert, he calls it, you're listening to this still small voice inside, the voice of self-knowing. So get to know yourself, get to know what's in your body, what's in your brain, what are you feeling? What is, what is making you tick? And when you're doing the slow breathing, what you're communicating to your brain is that it can drop the sympathetic stress response because you're safe. So my guess is Eric, when you were ranting and raving and yelling and carrying on with your people under you, you were communicating to your brain that you were in a lot of danger. You had yeah, my very- heart rate was up, and I, I, I mean, I could. And it's funny because now, with my scar from my cancer surgery, I can tell when my blood pressure goes up because I have a very, very. It, it heats up. It throbs. It, it, and, you know, it's it's an instant aware. You know, I I can tell. Oh crap! My heart, my blood pressure is going up. And I've been, you know, this year I've been really committed to my health. And I've been, so I, I got the call map and I do guided meditation for 10 minutes, 10 minutes. And, and people out there that meditate a lot more for me, 10 minutes is hard, but you know. It's hard for me too. I, I find meditating really, really hard. In fact, I got to the point where I find it hard to sit still going back to you being busy, busy, busy all the time. I use that as a mechanism to cope with stress as well. So what I do when I'm meditating now is I walk. I walk and meditate simultaneously. I try to stay present. I try to try to stay like in the world that's around me. I notice plants and birds and trees, do the deep breathing, but I keep moving. And I find that that stops me from, you know, spinning off into anxiety thoughts. So, I mean, everybody has their technique, right? I mean, you know, and the ideal time, like they, they've seen in research, amazing changes in the brain. If you're, if you could commit to 27 minutes a day for eight weeks, even, but just eight weeks, they saw huge changes in the brain. And what's so lovely about mindfulness is it taps you back into, because you're not all stressed out, 
your blood pressure isn't up, your heart rate's not up, your whole system is calmed down. It's called the parasympathetic system. The researchers call it rest and digest as a shorthand because it's your healthy, restful processing kind of thing. That's when you tap into creativity and problem solving and, and social emotional connection and all kinds of stuff like that, really good brain stuff. And so that's, that's a, a bonus that comes with it. I will tell you anecdotally, this is just me, the days when I, when I successfully, because <laughs> so I take my blood pressure twice a day because I'm trying to get my blood pressure consistently below 120 over 80 because the doctor threatened me with blood pressure meds and I don't want to go on meds. So I tend to meditate right before bed. So I'll, I'll do the 10 minutes and I can do it sitting on the couch because that's when my dog finally calms down. And so I'll have him like either next to me or his head's on my lap or something kind of grounding me. Not always. Sometimes he's a turd and he wants to be on the floor. But you know, and but I'll I'll do it, and I can tell one my blood pressure is a lot lower. Usually, usually it's like I've had it as low as ninety seven, ninety eight over you know over seventy or sixty nine. You know, and and in the morning when I get up, if I take it right after I get up, my blood you know depending on what's going on with my son or whatever, my blood pressure could be one. I think today it was like one twenty nine over eighty two. So it's a big difference, right? And the other difference I noticed right away, not right away, but what I've noticed is historically, I have a real hard time sleeping for more than five and a half, six hours. And I know people are like, you need eight hours. I'm like, I don't wake up with an alarm clock. I wake up, I'm ready to go six hours. You, And it, it's even worse. If I go to bed at 10 or 11 o'clock at night, I'm getting up at 3, 3.30. So I go to bed at 8 because I know I'm going to get up early. But when I meditate, I will sleep in, sleep in, air quotes, to four or 4.30 and get like seven, seven and a half hours, which for me is amazing, right? I just don't sleep that much. So anecdotally, I can see a huge, just on, on that side of my health. And it is huge. And you know, I, I love the fact that it doesn't cost anything and it's within your control and it's a practice. I mean, people want quick fixes but really it's what you practice that's going to count. And those types of building and those types of habits, it's so good. Just fantastic. And it has to be a habit, right? Because if I tried to do it at different times every day, I would never do it. But it's built into my day that, you know, I'm not proud of this, but okay, turn off Netflix at quarter to eight, you know, and then do my meditation, take my blood pressure, go to bed, you know, and it's this routine. Because I do really well if I know what my routine is. Yeah, most people do. Most people, it's, it's you know, and you can think of it, yeah, as mindfulness practice. They don't call it that for nothing. They call it that because you have to put the time in. Same with fitness, right? You can't just get up and go for a 10 kilometer walk or 10 mile walk and, and or run or whatever. You have to build slowly and surely. You also have to build in that some days you don't have good days. You know, you make mistakes, you fail, you fall, and you start fresh. That's okay. That's how the brain learns. It learns by making mistakes. So you got to let yourself off the hook. Just get back into your routine. Yeah. Well, as always, Jennifer, this was awesome. The time goes by really fast, but no, th thank you. Thank you again. And, and until next time. Absolutely. See you later. Thank you for listening to The Bullied Brain. As a reminder, neither Jennifer nor I are licensed clinical physicians, psychologists, or mental health professionals. Everything we are talking about during this podcast is anecdotal as it relates to me, Eric Jorgensen. 
If you are looking for help or you would like to seek answers to your own questions, we encourage you to seek out a mental health professional in your area. Please do not try to do or overcome any trauma on your own. Thanks for listening.